You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. We are in Ephesians. If you want to open up uh, Ephesians to chapter 2, I want to give a quick review of kind of what we've talked about thus far. Um, Paul has gone a great length in chapter 2 to explain that we are uh, dead in our sins, and yet we await this promise of an exaltation in Christ. And um, now what I want to do is ask the question, well, how, right? How do we go from uh, being dead in our sins and how do we, how does this exaltation take place? Do I have to do a bunch of things? Do I have to get baptized for this redemption? How do I get this exaltation that Paul talks about in chapter 2? And he answers the question for us in verses 8 through 10. And I want to read it all for you because it's only a few verses and then uh, we'll take it from there. Uh, it reads, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so here's the question for the sermon I want you to be able to answer and, and even praise the Lord for, I guess, by the end of all of this. It's what is the relationship between grace, faith, and works? What is the relationship between grace, faith, and works? These are the things that Paul lays out here. And really, this verse separates us. And understanding this probably separates orthodoxy from heresy. It separates Catholicism from Protestantism. Now, if you don't know, uh, many of you next week, um, while you're dressing up for Halloween, uh, many theo-nerds, Uh, around the United States will be flocking to their mother's basement to celebrate Reformation Day. Um, In fact, I have have some pictures of some theo-nerds and homeschool families in their natural habitat. I don't know if you can throw them up for me. Um, There's a a few that we have here. Do you got them? We good? All right, yeah. Here's a good example of what happens while you guys are out looking cool like Marvel characters. Some of us are in a basement dressed up yo- like Johann Tetzel with a cool medieval uh, dartboard in the back there. <laughs> now, um, I got to go to the next one. This is, this is, yeah, there's some all, I'm sure, very single people here at the Reformation Day party. Um, last one's my favorite. This was in a different location. There's, there's King Willie. Now, October 31st uh, is when... Uh, Martin Luther, if you don't know, uh, protested against the Catholic Church for what they were teaching. And it largely is what we're going to be dealing with today. And that was really what was dividing uh, these two groups of people. And it's this question of what is the relationship between grace, faith, and works. And so uh, if you're a note taker, I've got some points for you. Um, if not, I still have points for you. And they're easy to remember. It's grace, faith, and works. Before we jump into the passage, let us pray. God, thank you for your word. We thank you for the church that you have gifted us, that you allow us to be part of your body. Lord, I pray this morning that we can just rejoice in the truth that this text gives. I pray that we can worship you in it, that it will light a fire in us. Lord, I just pray that... um, Lord, you use your word to rebuke us where we need rebuked, to train us in righteousness. God, you're worthy of our time, of our effort, of our heart, of our mind, all of it. And we love you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I'm going to be looking, and the first point is grace. Let's start with the first part of verse 8. It says, for by grace you have been saved. Now, again, most of you probably know this verse. This is probably nothing new to you. Um, Paul, right, hits us with this notion in the very beginning that salvation is not earned in any capacity. Zero. You did nothing for God to choose you. You did nothing to earn God's favor. His favor was given as an act of kindness that you did not deserve, which is why it's called grace. Because grace, that's simply what it is. It's getting something you don't deserve. And so that's what we see. You've been saved by grace. You were saved. You were given something that you don't deserve. You and I are testaments of God's grace. If you remember in chapter 1, over three times, in fact, in chapter 1, it keeps saying, to the praise of his glorious grace on why he saved you. In other words, when you get to heaven, when you look at each other, you're going to look at one another, and people are going to look at you and go, I can't believe you're here. God is incredibly gracious. right? You'll look at your own life and say, wow, God's grace is incredible. It is awesome. Our salvation is meant to glorify. It's meant to show the reality of how deep his grace is. Now, in Scripture, we see two types of grace, both undeserving. Again, the term grace uh, assumes that. And it's common grace and saving grace. Common grace is simply this. It's God's kindness given to all mankind regardless of the relationship with God. Uh, the sun rises on the, the just and the unjust, right? Uh, you know, the unsafe people get their crops watered by rain. Uh, we all can, everyone can experience the beauty of a sunrise and laughter and jokes and family. All of these things are common grace, things that we all get to experience as being a part uh, of humanity. Now, saving grace is God's kindness shown towards his elect for the purpose of salvation. And so in chapter here in verse 8, it is clear that what's being talked about, because he tells us, is saving grace. That by God's generous mercy towards the undeserving, he grants this treasure to whom he loves. And again, it's unmerited favor. It means despite what you did, God rescued you from your sin, from your decisions, from your captivity of the devil, but primarily you're saved from God's judgment. Now, I remember being a skeptic, and, and I, I, as I was, became a young adult, I was around some, some Christians, and I remember they, uh, I would ask the question, as they told me this, they said, God wants to save you. I said, save you from what? From hell. Well, who's going to send me to hell? God will. And so as I'm sitting back and I'm thinking, I'm like, all right, hold on. What you're telling me is that I need to be rescued from this all-loving God, right? What you're saying is God wants to rescue me, save me from himself. And that seemed like a very odd notion to me, that somehow God wanted to save me from himself. And for the longest time, I had difficulty with this question. But this, the simple answer is yes, that's correct. God's wrath is coming to all those who oppose him and who mock him, who oppose the church, his bride, and who violate the law of God and are not covered by the, by the blood. And what we see in, in the Passover is but a glimpse, 
an intro of what is going to come when Christ returns to those who are not under grace. But yes, right? God wants to save you from his wrath, what you're owed. Now, wrath and love are not these two contradictory forces. In fact, right, the cross is where we see the love of God meet the justice of God to show the world the depths of the grace of God. There we see this, this beautiful grace that provides a, a redemption, a, a substitution. Right? And something I tell my kids often is, Jesus died on the cross, so you didn't have to. It was undeserved, unmerited favor and a love towards people he calls to himself. Now, I hope we all agree with this. But in history, there are many who fought against this teaching, right? In fact, this teaching that right now that we all see in Scripture clearly, this was banned at a time. As men and women were banned from reading their own Bible in their own language in an attempt for a group of people to hide the gospel, they would burn people for teaching exactly what we're saying and believe now. But we stand on the shoulders of giants, yet barely know their names. Now, saints fought against forces meant to preserve Scripture in this gospel. The Reformers called it sola gratia, which simply means by grace alone. By grace alone. And of course, this doctrine that, that we know is true, that Paul clearly teaches here, was considered and condemned by the Catholic Church. In fact, in medieval days, the Catholic Church would teach that you, you had to earn grace, that the priest could, in fact, dispense grace to, uh, to those who did particular things. Uh, and what you got was the people who labored and worked hard, not out of love for their Lord, but out of a sad, desperate desire for God to love them. Right? They thought that somehow they had to earn their God's affection because they did not understand properly what Paul and what Scripture, what the Lord teaches on about grace. If you did the right things, if you did what the priest told you, then you would get grace. If you were charitable, a little grace for you. You got married, a little grace for you. You got, commun you got communion and baptism, we'll sprinkle a little grace on you. And if you didn't do those things, no grace for you, right? They're like the soup Nazis of, of grace. There's even this guy named Johann Tetzel, the fellow that I was dressed up in in that person's basement. <laughs> Not creepy or anything. But uh, I, I was Johann Tetzel, and, and they, sent, they sent him around to sell indulgences, to sell grace in order to raise money for the, for the Pope's new pad, right? Uh, St. Peter's Basilica, it's where he lives now. Um, and so what they would do is they would, they would sell grace. Um, and he had this saying, he said, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Um, and that's, that's what he would say. And, people, and he would say, listen, if you're going to like cheat on your spouse, just pay a little money now and then you'll be forgiven for it. Get a little, get a little grace for future sins you haven't committed yet. If you have a, someone you love and they're in purgatory or hell, just give a little money and, and we'll, you, know, you can buy some grace for them so they can get out sooner. This was obviously wrong and a deep perversion of what Scripture says about grace. Now, selling God's grace is heretical, but we would never, of course, cheapen it 
God's grace today, would we? Except I, let me make the argument I think we often do. Maybe, maybe it doesn't look like that. We're not selling indulgences. But when we think that we have to do something in order to get God's favor, that is cheapening his grace. If you're here this morning because you're thinking, okay, I need God to like love me a little bit more, that's cheapening God's grace. When we do these things, we're treating the Lord as a prostitute who sells his affection. And it's why biblically it's so offensive. It's so gross. You and I do not buy God. In fact, Scripture gives it the reverse. It says God purchased you. While you were in your sin, he purchased you because he first loved you. We, in response, love him. Now, there's two ends of the spectrum, and I think there's some varieties. Uh, I, when, when people get, I think in the church, there are people who struggle with the concept of grace. Now, we, again, we wouldn't say it. We're not trying to buy indulgences. And I think we can typically see it in, in how we receive gifts from people. Um, I, I don't know about you. When I receive a gift from someone, um, I feel really awkward um, or even a compliment, like, oh, it just is the worst. Like, I like it, but I also hate it because I don't know how to respond to it. I, I say weird things, like, you know. So, so when people give me gifts, I, I don't, I, I'm, in my head I'm thinking, okay, how do I need to respond? I like this, but I need to let them know that I like this. So I tend to, like, overreact, and it's just weird. Um, I hate this about myself, but it's just the reality. Um, but I think this is, I think the way we receive gifts tells us a lot on what's internally happening when we receive grace. So I tend to be one on, on end of the spectrum. When I receive a gift, right, I feel, I feel guilty. Side note, by the way, um, past appreciation, I, it was, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank um, you. It was incredibly kind, incredibly gracious. I'll, I'll speak for Will and I. It was, it's overwhelming and too kind. Now, it took me a week to be able to, like, because I got really nervous thinking, okay, I want to talk about pastor's appreciation, because again, it was so kind, it makes me feel internally just awkward and undeserving, and I start to feel guilty, and that's where some of us are when it comes to the Christian walk in God's grace. We receive something that we don't deserve, and then we begin to feel guilty and feel bad, and when we sin, we beat ourselves up, we'll put ourselves on the sideline, or we'll try to say, okay, this week, I'm going to do a bunch of good things to kind of make up for it. I feel guilty because God showed me grace, so I'm going to try to live a really good life so I can kind of balance the scales, so to speak. And all we're doing is trying to make ourselves more worthy of God's grace. Listen, this is not a healthy place to be. We know our unworthiness. And the beauty is, so did he, and he knows it more fully than you. And often I have to preach to myself that his grace is sufficient. And I do not deserve his grace, hence why it's called grace. But I guess he knew, he knew that before he adopted. He knew about all the baggage that I had, all the deficiencies, the defects. He knew it all. 
We have to be careful we don't end up in this unhealthy place where we're having to start adding to the grace of God, because when we do that, we cheapen the work of Christ. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those who are uh, entitled, and maybe they don't value the grace that they're under. I think I, I saw it on a, a, a shot glass one time that really sums it up best. It said, drink up, you've got grace, right? In essence, get as drunk as you want, you've already been forgiven for it. In fact, this, is, this was a heresy in the, uh, in the New Testament church that, that Paul had to teach against in Romans. Now, both ends of this spectrum are unhealthy and both cheapen grace. One cheapens the work of Christ, and the other cheapens what it cost Christ. But I think often we're either in these ends or some variety in between. We either we live in guilt trying to participate in clearing the burden of our sin, or we live and we make light of our sin. It doesn't really bother us at all. And we fail to value holiness. I think both commonplaces fail to understand God's grace. We are God's children, and we are spoiled. Spoiled. I don't know, parents out there, I don't know about you, maybe we differ on this. I love to spoil my kids. I just want them to know they're spoiled. I want them to know they're spoiled and be thankful for it. And so the good news is, hey, guys, you are, you're spoiled. But it's time that we realize, oh, I know I'm spoiled. And I'm thankful. We're spoiled saints striving to live in thanksgiving for the grace he has given to a people so unworthy of such kindness. The second point is faith. Now, we're just going to move two words over in verse 8. I promise we won't go through this, <laughs> this slow, the, 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 all three verses. It says, for by grace you have been saved. Now watch what he does. Through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith. Now, I want to break this down a little bit. First, let's talk about what faith is, because there is some um, confusion on it. Uh, faith is not simply believing God exists. It's also simply not believing that Jesus is God. Satan believes both of these things, uh, and he is not saved, right? He, in fact, will be in hell. The faith that Paul speaks of here is one that lovingly trusts the covenant of God and whose hope and rescue is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Faith is not simply what we believe, but it's what our actions say we believe. It's both verbal and it's seen. I heard it said one time, this quote may be a little off, but it's, if you want to see what a man believes, both, uh, you must both listen to his words and watch his works. Without question, right? If, if we're going to know, in fact, if someone watches your life, despite what you say with your lips, you can actually see what you believe. If something means a lot to you, if the safety of your children or husbands, wives, whatever, means a lot to you, you're probably going to talk about it. You're going to teach your kids about being safe. Likewise, 
If you say, I love the gospel, I promise you'll talk about it. You'll see it in your works and deeds. Now, I think I'm a kind of normal person, normal-ish. I um, am like a normal human, right? I own a pet. I saw this what people do, so I got one. Be more normal. Um, now, we got a... Uh, we got a Yorkie poo, so it's barely a dog. <laughs> it's like a cat dog. Um, it's not a lab or golden retriever, like a manly dog. It's a Yorkie and a poodle mix. Some call it a, a Yorkie poo. I call it a, I call it a pookie. That's what I call it. Now listen, as like, like most men right, who own dogs that sound as fabulous as a pookie, um, I complain about it, right? Because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm like, oh, this little dog barks too much, gets some nerves, chews up stuff. Like, that's what I do. Um, my wife, anytime she hears me complain verbally and tell people what I say I feel about my dog, that I can't stand that little scoundrel, she shows him this picture to, to uh, say the otherwise. <laughs> now, if you were to see this picture, um, you would say, you don't hate your dog. You can say all you want to about how much you can't stand your pookie, but we got evidence that you love pookie. <laughs> my actions actually tell you what I think of my dog. Church, our actions should do the same. They tell you not what you say you believe. They tell you what you actually believe. Scripture says that our faith will be seen and, and, and how we seek holiness by, by loving the Lord with our heart, with our mind, with our body and strength and how we love one another. Church, our faith ought to be expressed. Again, faith is a trust and submission to God's covenant that works itself out practically as we're living sacrifices. It works itself out by serving, by giving, by discipling, by evangelizing, by equipping and trading, by caring, caring about the body of believers that Jesus died for and put in your life. So Paul gives an equation in this verse. He says, grace equals faith and salvation. Simple enough, right? Grace equals faith and salvation. Now, at first, I think we tend to agree with that. But in reality, I think in a minute, some of you are going to find yourselves in dip, deep disagreement with me. Because I think oftentimes what we do is, is go the other route, which is faith equals grace and salvation. And I, and I asked Baker to color code it so you know one is bad. The red one is bad. If you need to put it in your notes, do that. Because typically, what, the way we look at it, it says, we say, okay, I put my faith in Jesus, and in response, he gave me grace. But that's not what Paul taught. You did not get grace because you first believed in Jesus. That's literally what the Reformers fought against. That somehow, your faith was so impressive that God said, you know what? That's some good faith. How about I give you some grace? 
It ceases, understand, if that's what you believe, it ceases to be unmerited. Do you understand what I'm saying? It ceases to be unmerited. Now it's deserved. This is not what Paul is teaching. He's clear. Grace equals faith and salvation. Romans eleven six 6 says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It must be unmerited. It must be absent of anything that you could possibly do. So again, what is the role then of faith and salvation? It is the vehicle or the mechanism in which God uses and which he brings you out of death into life. By grace, God gives you faith so that you can believe because without an act of grace, you never would have sought God on your own. The moment that you decided to repent and turn to Jesus is because God granted you that faith. It was not of yourself. Because if it were, you would have reasons to boast. The very faith you have is an act of love by God towards you. Now, Paul knows he's going to get some pushback, so he wants to humble every Christian. Verse 8, I'm going to read the entirety of it. It says, by, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. I hope you see it, the beauty of it. Your faith is not of yourself. It is not your own doing. Paul, in fact, calls it a gift to you. Now think about that. Your faith did not come about because someone talked to you about it. It was not a pastor or a parent who talked you in to the kingdom. They didn't give you faith. God may have used them, those beautiful feet that carry the good news to you. But ultimately, your faith comes from your God as a gift. And because the only way to the Father is through Christ, the Father provides a way. And the Holy Spirit transforms the heart and the mind and grants you the gift of repentance and belief. And this ought to be humbling. And this ought to be humbling. And hopefully where it leads you is asking, well, God, why me? Why'd you give me faith? To the praise of his glorious grace. I often think about that, that apart from God intervening in my life, that I never would have believed. That if God had not first loved me and sought after me, that I never would have sought after him. And that's not some sort of logical conclusion I come to. The scripture tells you that. In Romans 3, it says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Listen to this. No one seeks for God. And by the way, the Greek no one there means no one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In our lostness, none of us sought after God. None of us were able to do good. 
So why does this matter? Why do we have to get the equation right? First off, humility. It should lead you to praise your God and ask you, why me? Oh, for the, for the praise of your glorious grace, I am in completely in debt to you. My life is completely yours. And hopefully it motivates you and, and, and leaves you in awe of God's amazing grace. But also, humility. When I first, when I first converted, I was a young adult, and my brother, who uh, he, we, we didn't know a lot of Christians, and we know really one, it was my grandmother. Um, and when I told him that, when, that I converted, all he, he, I remember him saying, he's like, uh, you're not going to be like grandmother, are you? Because like, she was like the epitome of lame. Uh, but uh, listen, she's like a hero of my faith today. Like That woman has discipled me and is incredible, right? But at the time, my two lost young adults, like no one wanted to be like a grandmother, right? Um, so what happens is I, I, I tell him, I try to share the gospel the best I can as a, as a young Christian. And he says, ah, I don't think so. I'm good. And my response was this. I said, are you stupid? What's wrong with you? Stop being stupid. I probably call him stupid like 15 times in a new two-minute period. And he got so upset with me. He didn't speak to me literally for two years. For two years, he didn't talk to me. Now, what was I doing? Inevitably, what I'm doing is I'm calling, I'm saying, you are dumb. Look at the good decision a smart person makes. Don't be stupid. Be like me. Truth was, he was being like me. He was being like me prior to God's grace, and he could do nothing about it. Our tendency is to think our faith is our own rather than a product of God's grace. And so what we do is we live a crack opening for our own boasting. We live a little bit there so we can pat ourselves on the back. But also I think part of us want to protect God as if he can't do it himself. Because the question that usually arises that we want to protect God from is, well, if God gives faith, then why doesn't he just give faith to everybody? That'd be awesome. I remember that was one of my big setbacks with the Christian faith in general. My, my mom was not a believer. She died when I was 12. And, and hearing the gospel for the first time, that was my thought. Well, if your God's so good, why didn't he give her faith? She died an unbeliever. You're telling me she's in hell. Like, that, I don't understand. Am I to believe that my God did not grant her faith? He, he could have. Hey, he could have done it like he did Paul, right? He, she could have been on her way to Aldi one day and goes blind and hears the voice of God. He could have done that with all of us, any of us. A little homework and a read of Romans 9, I think, goes a long way. First, I want to remind you that no one deserves grace. If you're like, that's a good question. No one deserves grace. Your humanity doesn't put God in debt to you. The fact that you exist does not put God in debt to you. His grace is his to give, and he grants it to whom he wills, which is exactly what he says in Romans 9. Also, he tells us that those who are his church is to the praise of his glorious grace. And those who are not, his judgment. He is, they, they honor and bring glory to his judgment. 
Listen, God didn't have to save anyone. The fact that he did, our whole entire life should be dedicated to his cause. Jugular to the heart of what for works. Works so that no one may boast. Again, Paul is simply showing, that he's, and he's making the case, that you did nothing for your salvation. Thus, there's no bragging allowed. There's no boasting permitted. Now, usually the question that comes is, okay, well, is faith a work? Well, the word that Paul uses here in the Greek is ergon, and it means any accomplishment with your hands or with your mind. So, according to Scripture, yes. And we submit to that because Scripture alone is the authority of faith and practice. What we don't submit to is the palate of sinful people. We don't go, man, that's uncomfortable. That's not really palatable for me. Right. We're sinful, depraved people who are, who are declared holy. Not, we are not holy people. Not apart from Christ. We see clearly that works do not save us. It is by grace, through faith, which is the gift of God. Now, Paul, of course, is not meaning to demonize works. Rather, he's putting works in their proper place. Um, Christians, right, we ought to work and labor out of worship for Christ. Look at verse 10. This is what Kathy read this morning. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, let me tell you, if you have not read um, Will's article, uh, it was published on Friday. It's on Facebook. Um, if it's not, if you haven't read it yet, please do so. It, it's, it's, it's short and uh, it is, it does a great job explaining this. Um, now, I could read it to you now, but, but Will would love that so much, so I, I will not. But, <laughs> but li- li- listen, listen, uh, I want you to know this. You've been saved for a purpose. Uh, you've been saved for a purpose, and one of those purposes is, is good works. You're a new creation. The old is dead, and God's prepared work for you to do and if you're not laboring out of love and worship, then church, you're AWOL. The truth is, sometimes, church, our labor, it's not fun. Sometimes it's not easy. But we walk in these good works, not because they're easy, but because we love our God. I haven't spoken to many. I think sometimes as Christians, we begin to have, a, our motive becomes kind of twisted, and what we, are, what we are know to do and what works have been put in front of us seem like a to-do list. In fact, when people think of the law of God, that's usually why they don't like it. Oh, it's just like a big religious to-do. But let me ask that you change the way you approach that, that it's not a to-do list, but a response list. You're responding to the grace of God. Now, God has given you things to do. Scripture is clear what we ought to be doing. Discipling and evangelizing, the, the mission of the church, but also as individuals, raising your kids up in the faith. Husbands, wives, discipling one another. Coming to church, right? Because it's the habit of some to not gather. Scripture even warns us of that. 
We're to sing his praises. We're to talk about his word when we get up and when we lay down and throughout the day. Scripture tells us what we ought to be doing. The question is, are we going to be obedient in that? And it's really hard to be obedient if it's like, oh, this is a to-do list. I have to do this. If we treat it like my kids treat like homeschool work. Oh, gosh, more assignments. It's a response list. Listen, we were created for good works. God created work for the church to do, and it's things that we're supposed to do and what we should be, hopefully, if the right heart is there, excited to do. Church, we, my prayer is that we can see and hear of the grace of God. Even our ability to believe and repent is a, is a gift, and that will leave us in awe and a place of worship when the only proper response isn't to feel guilty or isn't to feel entitled, but to fall on our face and praise him, for we are unworthy. And I believe when we realize the grace that's shown to us and the faith that's been gifted to us, that we will labor together for his glory and our good. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.